So with this podcast, with Alex, with Ohio Be the World, you discover Ohio's history. But with us on In the Record Store, you can discover Ohio's music. Discover better music on In the Record Store. I'm Vince. I host the show along with my buddy Grant. And there is a ton of music to discover. Ohio, I would say it is a musical state. Columbus is a musical city. So let's talk about it. Get to know their history like Alex does, but also get to know their music as well. It's in the record store wherever you download podcasts. Listen today. And now, here's Alex and Ohio Be the World. Hey, thanks to Vince from In the Record Store. We'll hear from Vince. He's one of our four guests today. On episode seven, it's Ohio versus rock and roll. We're going to talk about the history of rock and roll through four stories here uh, that occurred in the Buckeye State. Rock and roll, the term rock and roll is born here in Ohio. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is is up in Cleveland. Uh, We're going to talk about why that is. And we're going to look at the transformative music, rock and roll, that has dominated the airwaves for the last 65 years, a uniquely American music. If I had had it my way, I just would have been a singer, a rock star, whether it was my high school band, Cobalt, that I thought was going to make it big, and I'll never forget hearing my, my own rock and roll song on the radio that first time, um, or my college band, Smoke Jones, another really fun band uh, that had some really good, great songs, or even my current band, The Winnie Cooper Project, a 90s uh, kind of folk rap cover band. I love rock and roll. Um, and it's been a part of my life. I was raised on it, um, you know, raised my dad, listened to Tom Petty, and Bruce Springsteen, and The Who, um, The Rolling Stones, obviously. Rock and roll and just music in general are, are a big part of my life. So I want to share the history of rock and roll here in Ohio with you today. Uh, we'll journey through the birth of rock and roll, which happened up in Cleveland. We'll talk about Alan Freed, the DJ. Uh, with Jerry DePizzo of OAR, a very, very famous, popular band here from Ohio. Um, we'll talk about the tragedy that took place in Cincinnati at the 1979 Who concert. We'll sit down with Ross Wagner. He was there back in 1979. We'll also look at uh, sitting down with Vince, Vince Tornero from In the Record Store. Uh, their new magazine is out. Uh, and we'll talk with him about you know, how a cop became a hero of hard rock fans. Um, for for a shooting that happened at a show here in Columbus involving Dimebag Daryl of Pantera. And lastly, we're going to sit down with the man who I think personifies rock and roll in the state of Ohio, Randy Malloy. I just saw Randy last night um, at the Ohio at the Columbus Beer Fest. Uh, my band was playing there at the convention center, and Randy showed up in the VIP area, one of my favorite guys around town. He owns CD1025 an independent alternative radio station, my favorite radio station in the country. And we'll talk to Randy, um, you know, some of his stories about uh, of rock and roll here in Ohio, and also talk to him about, about the station and the future of rock and roll radio. And also, we'll have an interview with Jerry DePizzo just about how OAR made it from obscurity to rock and roll stardom. Jerry's a saxophone player in, in, that, in that great band here from Columbus. Um, and we'll talk to an interview at the end, talk about to, you know how he made it as an Ohio band uh, to be one of the biggest Ohio bands to ever make it in the music business. So we'll look at stories from Cleveland, Columbus, Cincinnati, the big three today. Uh, it's Ohio versus rock and roll. Our beer for the episode. We're having the Big Star White IPA from our friends over at Four String Brewing Company, uh, fourstringbrewing.com. 
They're located in Grandview. They've got a great tap room um, just over there somewhat recently. Dan Cochran, the owner. It's called Four String because Dan was a, a bass player, is a bass player. Um, he was in a very popular Columbus band in the late 90s uh, that toured a lot nationally called Big Back 40. Uh, he's even a manager on a tour with the Beach Boys in the 90s. I didn't know that about him. But we're having the Big Star White IPA, 7% alcohol. Uh, it's a Belgian IPA. It's really, really good stuff. Um, and we just can't thank Dan enough for all his support at our Season 2 launch party. Um, and again, go check them out at fourstringbrewing.com uh, and have yourself a Big Star White IPA when you get there. But without further ado, let's get started. Sex, Drugs, and Episode 7, Ohio versus Rock and Roll. This is Alan Free, the old king of the Moondoggers, and it's time again for another of your favorite rock and roll sessions, Blues and Rhythm Records, for all the gang in the Moondog Kingdom. Say hello to a lot of folks who've written to us tonight from all over the Moondog Kingdom. This is WTW, the Moondog Show. First question we're going to start with is, why is the Rock, rock and Roll Hall of Fame here in Ohio, that iconic building uh, designed by I.M. Pei, Opened in 1995 on the shores of Lake Erie. You know, should it be in, in L.A. or New York or Chicago? What, what makes Cleveland special? Uh, you know, Northeast Ohio, the home of Dave Grohl, who grew up in Warren. Trent Reznor and Chrissy Hine, Joe Walsh of the Eagles. Dan Auerbach and Patrick Carney of the Black Keys. One of my favorite bands. But the answer really is that Alan Freed, he invented the genre of rock and roll. He termed, or he coined that term, rock and roll. Uh, he burst on the scene as a DJ. The DJ was a very important, uh, very important role in the early years of rock and roll, and no one was bigger in the music business than Alan Freed. We sat down with Ohio musician and, and former guest uh, Jerry DePizzo to talk about Freed's decade in the spotlight in the 1950s and how he bridges the segregation of black and white uh, teenagers and he rides this new music and the birth of teenage culture to both power and fame in the music world as the man who, like I said, coined the term rock and roll. And we're going to talk about the story of the rise and fall of the moondog, Alan Freed. The radio comes into American lives in the 1920s. You know, it changes everything. Even today, roughly you know, 228 million adults in the, in the U.S. have listened to some form of radio at least once a week. Um, that's good for 93% of the U.S. adult population. More people than use the smartphone or watch TV in a week, according to this report in 2016. We asked Jerry about the birth of, uh, of radio and its effect on the music industry. I mean, it changed the music business, the entertainment, all entertainment business. It, before radio, an audience had to go to the music or entertainment. You had to go to the theater experience it you had to uh go to a concert after radio it came, the music came to you the entertainment came to you it was in your household all you had to do was just turn on a knob so it was massively important not only for for the arts uh but but for commerce as well being able to advertise and get into people's homes 
uh, every day is a sea change for a number of industries, including the music business. Alan Freed's born in 1921, and he moves to Ohio as a small child to Northeast Ohio. We asked Jerry about Alan Freed and his start in radio here in the Buckeye State. In 1933, he moves to Salem, Ohio, uh, not too far from where I grew up in Youngstown. I've been to Salem. Yeah, uh, he was, uh, went to high school up there. Uh, he played trombone in high school. He had a band, the Sultans of Swing. Nice. Uh, you know, so he grew up in Northeast Ohio, uh, graduates in 40, goes down to OSU, uh, starts studying radio. Goes to uh, goes to uh, World War II. Uh, he's on Armed Forces Radio as well. Kind of gets a feel for it. You know, uh, cuts his teeth uh, overseas. Uh, when he gets back, uh, he gets he's, he 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 travels all over Northeast Ohio and in Western PA. Gets jobs in Newcastle, uh, WKBN in Youngstown. He's doing sports. Uh, 1945, he gets. Uh, a job at uh, WAKR in Akron. And uh, that's where he really starts to take off and gain a following and get his footing in who we really know Alan Freed to be. Freed joins a station in Cleveland, WJW. I think it's now 8.50 a.m. It's a sports talk station up in Cleveland. you got to love Cleveland Sports Talk Radio. It's the best in, it's the, best in the state. Uh, and Cleveland is, is metro area is the 11th largest in the United States in 1950. Uh, you know, by contrast, its its metro area is thirty second largest today, uh, one spot ahead of Columbus. A uh, number that I'm sure is going to change as Columbus continues to grow. But Freed meets a local record store owner, and the Moon Dog Show, and subsequently rock and roll is born. Yeah, he's playing pre Elvis rock and roll, yeah. basically the mouth of the river stuff. Uh, he has this great quote from 1956 film Rock, Rock, Rock. Rock and roll is a river of music which has absorbed many streams. Rhythm and blues, jazz, ragtime, cowboy songs, country songs, folk songs, all have contribu- contributed greatly to the big beat. And that's the thing. Rock and roll is an inherently American in the sense that it is a petri dish of all of the... Uh, really the influence of African-American culture blended into a pop form. And so folks like Chuck Berry and Little Richard are at the forefront of this. And these are the folks that Freed is picking up on. And these are the folks who are resonating with his audience and the young people in his area. Teenage culture develops after the war. They become fans of Alan Freed and, and this new music that they're hearing. Kids have cars, incredible freedom, uh, thanks to the prosperity in the 1950s in America. Uh, It affords this new demographic a lot of buying power. Buying power and importance uh, that's still seen today. That's one of the most key markets uh, for retailers and and businesses. There's no teenage culture following the Civil War during the Depression. It starts in the 50s, and it starts with Alan Freed. We asked Jerry about teenage culture and its connection to the birth of rock and roll. Pre-World War II, there is no room, there's no wiggle room for a teenage culture. You, you're probably working, to be honest with you. And if you're, if you're lucky, you're going to school. If not, you're probably helping your folks out in whatever the family business is. So the economic boom of post-World War II America, the, a middle class develops. When the middle class develops, 
wiggle room for teenage culture, disposable income, kids being able to buy records, buy concert tickets, travel. They have cars now. The radio exists in their living rooms. All of these things contribute to the fact that now they're able to create their own culture and have their own voice. And Alan Freed's the loudspeaker for it. But teens and their culture you know, becomes a threat to the status quo and the respect of their elders. You know, Freed was a voice for them, and he defends these teens, his core audience. Um, but Freed ultimately paid for the promotion of this raucous teen culture later in, in his decade of fame. But listen here as he defends teenagers in America. It's certainly a shame to single out the teenagers in this country and make uh, everybody look at them just because they're teenagers. It happens to be a sin. They're the greatest and most wonderful age group in America. Since when has it become a crime to be a teenager? In March of 1952, Friday night, March 21st, 1952, Alan Freed hosts the first rock and roll concert. And the disastrous result is is exactly what parents and authorities and religious leaders were warning everyone about with this new form of music. It's dangerous. We asked Jerry about the famous concert you see. Uh, it's on our cover for the episode, um, the Moondog Coronation Ball, held at the old Cleveland Arena in 1952. It's, it's the very first and one of the best <laughs> rock and roll moments of rock and roll. Yeah. Alan expected 5,000 people to come to this dance. And I got to think at the time, too, I'm going back. Uh, in my own band, I, I, I dot all the I's and cross the T's on the production side of stuff. How's it get a sound? What's the equipment that we're going to use in order to give everybody a good experience when they come to a show? I can't imagine expecting 5,000 people and trying to produce sound for 5,000 people, you know, in 1952. Right, with five or six different bands. It's I mean, it had to be a total. I don't. I don't know how anybody heard anything. Yeah. You know what I mean. So to have, expect five thousand, have twenty five thousand people show up for it. Uh, the logistics of the security of something like that, uh, just the traffic of something like that. The arena the fact holds that everybody's, maybe ten thousand. Yeah, I think the fact that everybody is probably between the age of twelve and twenty five. You know, is I mean, it's a powder keg, mm-hmm. uh, and. It blows. Uh, they rush the doors. They blow through the front doors of the place. There's a stampede. Uh, you know, property's damaged. There's fights. Freed was blamed for this basic riot downtown. He goes on the air the next night on Saturday night to defend his movement, really to save his job. And he ushers in the rise of rock and roll following the Moondog Coronation Ball. Hello, everybody. This is Alan Freed speaking. And, friends, I want to have a little talk with you before we begin our regular Moondog show tonight about the horrible disappointment of many thousands of folks who tried to attend our coronation ball at the Cleveland Arena last night. And believe me, I come to you very humbly and with deep regret in my heart because of the great disappointment that thousands of you who have been my friends suffered last night. And believe me, I want to say that I suffered right with you. If anyone, even in their wildest imagination, had told us that some 20 or 25,000 people would try to get into a dance, well, I suppose you would have been just like me. You probably would have laughed and said they were crazy. Now, as everyone who was inside for the first hour of the dance will testify, we were having a real great time until the crushing pressure of some 10,000 people still outside smashed open the doors of the arena 
and converged on the inside. When that happened, and some 7,000 persons without tickets bulged the insides of the arena, the whole show went out of control. Now, friends, that's the story, and that's the truth. Now, I'd like to have you do this for me tonight when you call in your request to our Moondog show on this Saturday night. I would like to have you tell Dean on the telephone when you call in that you are with the Moondog. We asked our guest, Jerry DePizzo, you know, did Alan Freed really create the phrase rock and roll? You know, is Alan Freed the reason the Rock Hall is here? Uh, he was in the inaugural class of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1986 and is featured prominently still at the museum. It's the cornerstone for it. It's, it really is. It's the foundation of it. I mean, I, I think the city of Cleveland kicking in about 65 million bucks or so in public money probably helps that as well. Uh, but, you know, I would, you know, there is no rock and roll without Alan Freed. Alan Freed moves to WINS in New York City. And his reach to, to the nation and his career take off in 1954. We asked Jerry about that move to the Big Apple and how Alan Freed becomes a household name. He creates this, this, this movement out of Cleveland with, with rock and roll. Um, and it spreads, to the, it, it spreads to Pittsburgh. It spreads to the East Coast cities, the big East Coast cities. He gets courted. He gets kicked up to the big leagues. Now he's in New York City. Now his loudspeaker is not only uh, to a region, but to a country and beyond, and probably not within his wildest dreams, to international waters over the pond, uh, to our good folks like the Beatles, uh, the Rolling Stones, the early British invasion folks. Their, some of their first exposure to rock and roll and what they would shape and mold rock and roll to be came from Alan Freed and his work in New York. Freed gets his own television show on ABC. He's in a number of rock and roll-based movies in the mid-50s. And his show, The Big Beat, as it was called, uh, brings American rock and roll to the television screen. Kids dancing. Um, and he gets this show on ABC. But his show, his radio show, was be, being broadcast even over in Europe, even in places like Liverpool, England. You know, it's said that Freed's show was the Beatles' first introduction to rock and roll music in the night, late 1950s. They would listen to Alan Freed's show um, when they were first starting out and, and help them form a band. Uh, but racism is still very prevalent in the United States in the 1950s. We've talked about it on previous episodes. Um, you can go back to listen to Ohio versus Jim Crow last season. Um, but he helped integrate white Americans and African Americans, you know, which was very different from the older generation. Uh, and the show gets canceled nationally as part of this um, integration, you know, that, that, that rock and roll breeds. You know, it's just four weeks in, and the show gets canceled. We asked Jerry why, and it's the first of many disappointments for Free that lead to his exile from the music business in the early 1960s. He hits, he hits the big time with his New York radio hour, and there's a lot of opportunities for him. He puts on more uh, dance, concert-like experiences. He's the guy that curates the talent in the music and really, really, you know, draws people in. So he gets a TV show, The Big Beat, which is kind of like, a, you know, a precursor to like a Dick Clark, right, yeah. Soul Train, all the shows kind of like that, yeah. Bandstand, American Bandstand, all that kind of stuff that that uh, came after it. Um, 
Frankie Lyman, who was uh, a member of the band The Teenagers, went off to his solo career of his, uh, African-American artist, on primetime ABC TV, uh, dances with uh, a white girl, uh, a white teenager. Uh, the Southern affiliates of ABC lose their mind <laughs> over this. I'm sure. Uh, and even though the show had fantastic ratings, it was canceled after four weeks. Freed has another concert in Boston, uh, and it's a total disaster. The police shut it down, uh, and Freed actually gets indicted for inciting a riot. Stabbings take place outside, uh, people, you know, just an absolute mob scene. Uh, and it's a legal trouble that would follow him around for some 18 months. We asked Jerry about that Boston show, um, much like the Moondog Coronation Ball, but on a much larger, more disastrous scale. He puts on a, a Coronation Ball-like concert in Boston. Uh, Boston's a Irish Catholic tough working class town uh the values of of that faith run deep um very traditional very especially in the 50s especially in the 50s so uh it's packed it's to the gills it's something you know not to the extreme of the one in cleveland but you know it's packed to the gills people are unruly again rock and roll is disruptive uh the cops threatened to shut the show down. You know, they don't want to hear the rock and roll. They don't want people moving like that. They don't want the kids dancing like that. Uh, so the cops tell them, like, look, hey, if you play rock and roll, we're shutting this thing down. So Freed gets up frustrated in the moment, gets up on stage and tells the audience of uh, teenagers, looks like the cops don't want you to have any fun tonight. And the place goes berserk. So riots, stabbings place goes crazy uh and um you know uh freed uh, gets in trouble for that a scandal rocks the rock and roll world in the late 1950s and it engulfs alan freed it's called payola it describes you know the, the idea of people bribing djs and bribing people in the in the radio industry to play their songs it, it goes to the power of the dj someone like alan freed um, Freed denies having any role in it or taking money to play records, but ultimately he's called before Congress to testify. Testify about whether or not he took money. Testify whether or not he is at the center of the payola scandal. Yeah, so payola is, so the DJs at this time are the gatekeepers to uh not only getting music heard, but this audience, this young, voracious teenage audience that is just just hungry for rock and roll. So people who publish rock and roll music, uh, labels who press and record the music, managers who manage the artist, everybody is dying to try to figure out how to get their records played. So they uh, cut through a lot of the BS and start uh, paying directly these DJs to play their music. Uh, that can happen in a number of different ways. Uh, some people just get paid cash, uh, you know, something as high as 22, 20, you know, 25 grand at that point. Wow. That is a lot of money today, I think, to play a record, let alone in <laughs> uh, 1960. Yeah. Uh, in kind trade, which would be uh, the artist coming in and doing maybe concerts or something like that for the for the uh, for the station. 
uh, free of charge, very little cost, something like that. Uh, or even getting uh, publishing, basically getting songwriting credit on the song. Uh, Alan Freed has a writing cred on Chuck Berry's Maybelline. I mean, yes, he, he, he gets subpoenaed uh, <laughs> to, to testify, refuses to do so, uh, and um, is charged as well. The Paola scandal, he really never comes out from underneath it. Uh, it, it haunts him through the rest of his life. The older generation never trusted Alan Freed or rock and roll music. They thought it was bad for the country. And ultimately, Freed is found guilty of commercial bribery. He descends further into his drinking. Uh, he's fired by his station in New York City as a result of Paola. He can't get a job. We asked Jerry about the final years, his alcoholism, and the decline of Alan Freed from the top of the rock and roll world, a world that he helped create. Absolutely. I think he's enjoying the spoils of rock and roll, and it's right. certainly hard not to. Uh, in listening to and watching some of the clips and doing the research for this, you know, at the very beginning of this, I, I, I liken him to like a crooner, like a Sinatra, Dean Martin. He's totally. got a real silky voice. Um, his, his, his approach and his attack is very staccato and kinetic, but he has a very soothing voice. Uh, as he gets older, it gets gruffer. You can, f you can almost hear the booze in his voice take yeah. hold. Uh, he dies in Palm Springs, California, January 20th, 1960, 65, excuse me. Uh, at 43, he's 43 years old. Really? Jeez. That's young. Yeah, that's, that is, that's, that's young even by rock and roll that's, standards. That's, that's pretty young, man. <laughs> that's pretty young. So, you know, you could, the business certainly took a toll on him. Freed ultimately dies in Palm Springs, California in January of 1965, 43 years old. Like we said, the Rock Hall used to keep his ashes there until they decided to remove him. They said they didn't want human remains at the, at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I guess that's fair enough. But we asked Jerry just one last question about Alan Freed's biggest contribution to music and to the country. His biggest contribution is bringing African-American culture to a white audience. And I can't say that he, he did it in the way that was the most fair to the artist that he, that he presented. His largest con contribution is exposing that culture that really, uh, to this day, still has its finger on the pulse of, of teenage music. You know, this is, it was, ja it was jazz at first, it was rock and roll. Uh, you know, hip hop culture from there, it, 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 it makes each one of those successions a little bit wider and it grows a bit more. And I think that's, you know, Alan Freed certainly played a big part of that. For our second story, we're going to move down to Cincinnati, the Queen City. Alan Freed ushered in the British invasion, and that changed music forever. The Beatles, the Stones, all these bands that came in in 1964 uh, at the height of the British invasion. The Who, the band The Who, was formed in London, England. Roger Daltrey on vocals, Pete Townsend revolutionizing the electric guitar, John Entwistle basically playing lead on bass, the incomparable Keith Moon on drums. Wild and crazy guy. Uh, that Keith Moon, he was wild. 
the who are known they smashed their instruments they're everything that that people had warned about rock and roll music uh you know they reached the peak of the of the music world by 1979 they're one of the biggest bands and they roll into the queen city for a show on december 3rd 1979 at the riverfront coliseum downtown cincinnati known for bands like jefferson airplane the band the national is actually having a homecoming festival this summer um they're from Cincinnati. Uh, Bootsy Collins, the Afghan Wigs, Walk the Moon. Um, I saw them perform on, on the field there at Great American Ballpark during the All-Star Game uh, a couple years back. They're from Cincinnati. Uh, another personal favorite, not quite as well-known, but the Heartless Bastards, another great Cincinnati band. We speak with Ross Wagner. Ross was there that fateful night in Cincinnati to see his favorite band, The Who. They're still his favorite band. When he was age 15. Uh, at that time, I was 15. I went to the show with my older brother, Neil. At the time, it was newer. And, and The Who was my first concert ever, to be perfectly frank with you. Um, you know, I'm a child of the 60s, born in 1964. Uh, but I'm not a product of the 60s. I left that up to my brothers. And I was very much influenced by their music. And growing up, one of their favorite bands was The Who. So that's what got me hooked on The Who, found out they were coming to Cincinnati in December of that year, and my brother and I went. Are you saying that this Who concert was your first concert? Yes, first concert period. People start lining up outside the Riverfront Coliseum many hours before the show. It was a cold December day. The floor was open to anyone. It was first come, first serve. It's called festival seating is what, is what Riverfront Coliseum called it. This means that the first people, when they let the doors open, you can run up and be in the first row. A couple hundred, maybe even as many as a couple thousand people start lining up for this concert hours before the doors are supposed to open. We asked Ross what role festival seating played in the tragedy at Riverfront Coliseum. Well, festival seating had a lot to do with what actually, what eventually happened that night. Um, You know, it was basically first come, first served uh, for the floor. Um, you had about 12,000 people wanting to get the best seats that they could or the best standing room only that they could. And unfortunately, only one set of glass doors was functioning. And uh, throughout the day, more and more people came. Uh, at some point, the Who did a sound check, and that was mistaken for the concert starting. And that's what kind of led to the stampede, if you will. Right around 7 o'clock, the the Who starts sound checking. It's not the actual show. They're, they're just checking the levels. And it's about the same time as the doors are supposed to open. A panic sets in. There's no opening band. It's just the Who that night. And, and people start to force their way in. Um, they start to, there's only two doors that were open. You know, all these people waiting outside. They hear the music and people start trying to rush in. There's a little entryway that leads to some turnstiles and some ticket takers. But there's only a couple of those. You know, according to Ross, only one side of the of the ticket taker turnstiles were even open. There's two big doors to let everyone in once you get inside the building, and only one of those doors was open. But thousands of Ohioans are trying to cram into this arena. And suddenly hundreds of people are in an area that's only supposed to hold, you know, 20, 30, 40 people. People are beginning to fall. People are beginning to get trampled on, suffocating. People talked about how you couldn't get any oxygen in there. Uh, even if you were standing up. And the bottleneck 
that happens. We ask Ross about how it all went down on December 3rd, 1979. One of my other brothers went too, and he actually sat in a seat. So he went in those same doors. There are doors, obviously, to get in. Uh, there was a plaza or a mezzanine area um, that everybody had to walk across. I believe it's 70 or 71, whatever that, 71, that, yeah, yeah. 71 that goes over in Kentucky. And there's a plaza that's built over that. Everybody was standing waiting to get in. Now, there were several sets of doors, but there are there is one section where there are two double set of doors right next to each other. And from what I understand, uh, only one set of those doors was opening. Wow. So as everybody lunged forward to get in, once they thought the who was on the stage, uh, that's when, you know, you, you, you see it from time to time when large crowds get together and there's a lot of movement. People fall. They get, they get stepped on. They suffocate. This is an interview done later, but this gentleman, you know, starts talking about being stuck in that crowd as they continue to surge and push further and further ahead. The people in the back and people are falling down, being stepped on, stepped over. Um, there's nowhere to even put your arms. They couldn't even put your arms in your pockets. The police aren't helping. They're not opening other doors, uh, and people are beginning to die. You know, the bottleneck was closing. We listened to this interview by another person who was there that night. A group of people that had fallen down, and there was no way you couldn't help them. I mean, you had everything you could do to keep your own feet and you got shoved into it. I got shoved into this crowd and the whole time people, you're, I mean, they're pinching you. You're standing on it. There was no way you could, you know, there, you couldn't do anything about it. You couldn't bend over. If you went down, that was the whole thing when I got in the middle of it. I thought, man, if you go down, this is it. And Ross shows up for the show and he, he's got access to a different entrance, uh, but it wasn't like he wasn't actually personally involved in the stampede. His brother that he, that also went separately did go through those doors. But even though Ross didn't walk through those two doors that, that ended up being the, you know, the death of 11 people that night, he still sees signs that something might be wrong. The first inkling that we had that anything might be wrong was when, I guess today you would call them first responders, uh, but some paramedics tried to get on the elevator um, with a gurney or a stretcher and realized that they weren't on the right floor. Um, really, the doors closed, really didn't think anything of it, thought, you know, this many people at a concert, alcohol, drugs involved, somebody probably did something stupid. Was, I, I don't know, cause for alarm, if you will, was the fact that right before the show came on, or the who came on, the fire marshal came on the stage, or at least he said he was the fire marshal, and said, you know, we can't start the show till everybody takes five steps back. And I don't think anybody really understood what he was saying, so he kind of said it again, and he said, if you want the show to go on, you have to step back. So eventually everybody kind of stepped back, and you know, a couple minutes later, The Who came on. I still can't believe that The Who concert in Cincinnati was, was Ross Wagner, our guest's first show. It's incredible. Um, and, and it's an amazing show by all accounts. The Who come on... Um, and meanwhile, the, you know, the scope of the destruction at the main entrance is, is becoming known. Eleven people are dead. Many more are critically injured, being rushed to hospitals. City officials decide to continue the concert to avoid a riot. They feared there'd be a riot if they canceled the show. It might even be more destruction, more injuries. The band was not told. 
The crowd was not told. Nobody has cell phones, anything like that. And the show goes on. We asked Ross about the actual concert. Freaking out. I mean, you know, I remember when Roger Daltrey came out and just started singing with his powerful voice and Pete playing his guitar and Entwistle ripping the bass. And, uh, you know, it was it was fantastic. And maybe that was just because that was my first concert ever. And I was so excited to see them. Nothing compares to that show. Yeah. Um, you know, the who's the who. And they were the guys that would blow up drums and smash guitars and mm-hmm. trash hotel rooms. So you, you kind of expected that, you know, that edge when you went there. The band is told after the show. They're actually told before they an encore that something went wrong. And they cut the encore short, as Ross said. Um, Ross is leaving the arena. He's still got a buzz from that concert. And he doesn't even know. He didn't see these piles of shoes. You see the pictures of shoes and articles of clothing that were just sheared off of people in, in, the, in, the, in the melee. Ross and his brother exit the show and still don't know anything's going on. They get in their car and they drive home. We talk about you know, how the band found out and how Ross finds out and how he has to pull over and make a phone call. I don't know when the band found out. From what I've read and heard, they didn't know until after. I think authorities kind of probably huddled up and said, we'll have more of a mess if we were to cancel the show. Yeah. Um, but as far as me finding out, you know, it was on the ride home when, you know, we were listening to the radio and just about every radio station in, in the city was saying, hey, if you were at the show, call home. You know, we found an old interview with, with the Who guitarist Pete Townsend the day after this happened. And the band is heartbroken. It's something they, they still think about, I'm sure. You know, how could this happen? And happened before they even took the stage. Let's listen to Pete Townsend talk about their dismay. We didn't find out until after the show. We didn't sense it. I was amazed, actually, at the the frailty of my intuition because I would have thought that I would have been able to sense something. But it just felt like it was one of it's one of the best shows we've ever played. And he took us into this room and he said, "Eleven kids have been killed tonight." Because I think the thing at the moment that we have to consider is is that somebody has got to try and prevent this kind of thing happening again. Obviously, definitely in this city, but in other cities where there's a potential for them. God help me if I tried to blame anybody. I can imagine that the people that run the arenas and that the mayor of this city and a lot of the kids that were at the concert feel as badly as we do about it. The tragedy in Cincinnati you know, shocks the music community. Did it, but did it really change shows across the country? No, not really. We asked Ross about that. You know, In Cincinnati, you used to not be able to have festival seating at an indoor show for, I think it was more than 3,000 people. Um, but we asked Ross about, did it have any effect on concerts? And also that the Who came back 30 years later and played a show at the Riverfront Coliseum. We asked Ross about the effect the concert had. I think this made people that put on shows more cognizant of that whole process. I mean, the family sued, the city, the band, the uh, concert, the promoter, you know, so, and and it was settled and, you know, they got, I I don't know, whatever they got is irrelevant. Um, I know the next show that was on their their, their tour date was canceled. Um, In fact, the Who 
came back like 30 years later to that venue and honored the 1979 tickets if he still had them. A monument stands between Great American Ballpark and U.S. Bank Arena, as it's called now, in Cincinnati. Dedicated in 2015, it reads The Who Concert, 12379. Eleven concertgoers trapped in a crush of people died at the north southwest plaza entrance to Riverfront Coliseum waiting to see The Who. Many others were injured in what was the deadliest concert tragedy in United States history. The tragedy spurred passage of a crowd safety ordinance, which became a model for the world. And Cincinnati did pass, pass a law about crowd safety, um, a lot of which is still adhered to today. The 11 victims ranged from ages 15 to 27. Nine of those 11 were from Ohio. And if you ever get a chance, you're down for there for a Reds game, check that monument out about the Who tragedy, December 3rd. 1979, Cincinnati, Ohio. For our next story, we're joined by Vince Tornero from In the Record Store. It's a podcast, it's a blog, it's a magazine. Uh, that that Vince and his team put out about Ohio music, and they help you to try to discover better music is their is their tagline. Um, their magazine comes out quarterly. Uh, you can check the new one out and find them at intherecordstore.com. Listen to their show on iTunes, uh, and they've got a lot of cool things they're doing in 2018. They've even got an Ohio jukebox where you can listen to Ohio music right there on the website. Um, you can follow them on Facebook, Twitter. Uh, they also do live performances during the episodes with their guests. Really cool. Uh, we talked to Vince just about his show in the record store. So we're sitting here with Vince Tornera from In the Record Store podcast, uh, InTheRecordStore.com. Check out their magazine, In the Record Store, which comes out quarterly, right? January. Actually, it's out now. Yeah, got a new one out coming out now already. Excellent. Um, how did you get started? When did you start in the record store, and, and how did you get the idea to do this? Well, we're coming up on our third anniversary. We started in February of 2015, and we got started because my buddy Grant and I just had a great connection about music, and the thing of it is that there's just, I mean, you got bands like Angela Purley, Counterfeit Madison, uh, Forrest and the Evergreens, those guys were great. Uh, you have Doc Robinson as well, so there's so much talent in this city where when you see that kind of musical talent and more people don't know about it, it to me, honestly, Alex, is is an injustice and it's just frustrating to not see that talent get shown and to be more accessible. So that's kind of, uh, in short, uh, some of the mission behind In The Record Store. Yeah, and you've really gotten help get their name out to you know a whole new segment of the population, not just in Columbus, but yeah. across the state. Yeah. Um, and you guys also do some you know interviews with national acts. I mean, talk about how that's kind of started to develop and some of the people you've talked to in, you know, in 2017? Well, I've had a lot of great help from uh, my producer and operations manager, uh, Mel. That guy's been a huge help to get us connected with bands like Phoenix. Uh, we interviewed... Uh, I'm a big Phoenix fan. Yeah, we interviewed Thomas. He's really cool. Uh, we actually talked with uh, George Thorogood, of all people. That was a lot of fun. Nice. The dude, he's so laid back, man. He doesn't take himself seriously. Like We talked for about 20, 30 minutes, and he just was so neat about just his his whole outlook and perspective on uh, on everything. Uh, we've talked with a uh, great band, uh, White Reaper. Uh, they, yeah, they, great they've new been band, through. Yeah. yeah, they're great. World's Greatest American Rock Band is the title of their album. And so I love <laughs> that attitude. 
Uh, but uh, but yeah, so basically, we, we've talked to a bunch of bands, and we've got a great year coming up. We have an Ohio Jukebox as well, so if you just want to listen to music, you can see that on InTheRecordStore.com, too. Three major tragedies have befallen the music community in concerts. Three major concert disasters, attacks, terrorist attacks, whatever you want to call them. Uh, recently, in the last couple of years, of course, you know, famously, 89 people are killed at the Eagles of Death Metal concert, the Bataclan in Paris. Uh, you know, the Ariana Grande show uh, in Manchester, England, another bombing early last year, 22 dead, 120 wounded. And of course, you know, most recently, the Route 91 festival in Las Vegas, uh, the country music festival where 58 people were killed, over 500 injured, the worst mass shooting in U.S. history. Um, it happened at a concert. But the first I know of that really happened, a shooting uh, in, in recent times that kind of maybe even started this thing, it, it didn't involve any religious or political reasons. It was just an act of pure adulterated violence and hate. You know, motive be damned. But we talked to Vince about, you know, this rash of, of shootings that we've seen at these concerts, these soft targets, uh, and how they've impacted rock and roll and how they've impacted music in general. Music, and one of the things we talk about on on my podcast is music is the ultimate unifier. I mean, you, you, I mean, I've met you several times at Independence Day Fest, and you know the team over there does a great job doing that. And you get there, man, that's the ultimate unifier. How many people, different thoughts, different backgrounds, different everything, get together and just enjoy freaking great music? Yeah. So when you've got something like that that happens so tragically, that rips apart so much, it is such a a um, sort of like dichotomy or whatever. It's such just an opposite there. It's just like Gosh, like man, what what a tragedy with happened, you know, with such a, a unifying musical experience. Subject to this story is a man named Dimebag Daryl. He's a very influential heavy metal guitar player in the band Pantera, a very famous metal band in the nineties and in, in the early two thousands. We ask our guest Vince Denaro, who was Dimebag Daryl? You know, and who influenced him, his guitar playing for someone who's so influential for others. No, Dimebag Daryl was uh, Daryl Lance Abbott. He was born on August 20th of uh, 1966 uh, in uh, Dallas, Texas, near Dallas, Texas. And he was one of those guys where, at the age of 11, uh, Dimebag uh, first picked up a guitar dressed as Ace Fraley of Kiss. Yeah, he loved Kiss, right? Yeah, Kiss was actually, he was actually buried in a Kiss casket that was donated to him from Gene Simmons. <laughs> like, seriously, like Gene Simmons, from what I can tell from various sources, uh, actually sent him his personal Kiss casket. That's incredible. Oh, it is. So, so Kiss was one of the bands that really got him into rock and roll. He also played some, like, Deep Purple, some classic rock stuff. And what's interesting, too, Alex, is that uh, Jerry Abbott was, um, it was, was Daryl Abbott's father, you know, Dimebag's father and he was a country music producer so at a young age there was already that petri dish of musical inspiration that was around Dimebag was influenced a lot by Van Halen Eddie Van Halen was a huge driving force so that shredding style was definitely mm-hmm. really key and instrumental uh, in a lot of uh, Pantera's tracks and he's buried with a Eddie Van Halen guitar, isn't he? Yeah, so Eddie Van Halen actually uh, said that an original deserves an original, and uh, Dimebag was laid to rest with uh, many bottles of Crown, uh, <laughs> and uh, also a 1979 original Van Halen Bumblebee guitar from Eddie Van Halen, which is an incredible honor. Pantera makes it big. They released an album called Far Beyond Driven in 1994. It goes to number one on the Billboard Rock charts. Uh, they're Grammy-nominated. They reached the heights 
uh, of the music industry. Even though it's a you know a genre, the heavy metal rock genre that I'm not really into, um, it still has huge record sales. Um, we talked to Vince about their success and ultimately their breakup in the early 2000s. Be far beyond driven because this was a time where Pantera really started to find themselves. So they're out of the glam rock phase. They're a couple albums into more of the metal phase, and this was the phase where they really started to just drill down, literally, far beyond driven, uh, as a cover of a skull getting a drill bit in its forehead. So it is really one of those albums where they started to find their identity, and that one actually sold a million and a half copies and uh, debuted at number one in 1994, wow. uh, as far as I can tell from my research. But um, that one, uh, Pantera as a whole, has sold just about over seven million copies. So they took a break in 01. Phil Anselmo said, we'll be back, and we'll make another album in about a month. Uh, but then those months turned into more months, and then a year, then several years. And so what was sad about the situation is uh, Phil Anselmo's drug issues really, I think, played a part in the departure. He was the singer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Phil's drug issues, he relapsed twice. He OD'd once, uh, you know, right after a, a huge gig. So that really played a part. But I think it was just the time apart and Phil's personality of wanting to distance himself is what really did it. Dimebag and his brothers, we fast forward to the day we're talking about, December 8th, 2004. A deranged Central Ohio fan of Pantera has a plan to get back at Dimebag for whatever demented reason he has. Pantera was his favorite band. You know, he's a fanatic. The show's at the Al Rosa Villa up in North Columbus, right off the I-71. It's been around forever. Um, and it's just a, a hard rock hall. It's still open today. Yeah, if you go around the back, there uh, there is, well, of course, in front, you've got the R.A.P. Dime, the painted rock out front. Uh, and I read, at least on one website, that they close every year on the anniversary just out of respect, you know, because you don't want to make a speckle out of, you know, this is where somebody died at this moment, at this time, you know. Yeah. Uh, on the back, though, uh, where the shooter came through, you have a lot of graffiti that says R.I.P. Dime and things like that that are back there. So uh, the Alrosa opened up in 1974. So this has been active for about 43, 44 years now. Uh, and it has been a rock club that, to me, carries a similar grit like the Newport. Uh, so I've seen pictures, a lot of pictures inside, some crime scene photos as well. And when you look at this, you can really tell that that club, and I mean this in an endearing way, is wearing 43 years of hard rock and roll. Yeah, just like There's the, a lot of camels in those walls. Yeah, I mean, you can, the uh, same thing with the Newport. I don't know if you've ever been backstage at the Newport, but it is, I haven't, yeah. it's, it's not nice. No, but that's the charm of it. You know, rock and roll is not supposed to be nice. I mean, you can fit about 600 people in there. Uh, so there was a couple of, actually local uh, hard rock acts, like, um, I think, I can't remember the names right now, but there was some local bands that opened up some for, openers, yeah. yeah, that opened up for them. Um, so the venue that night had about 250 people that were there for the openers, and I'm not sure as to how many people are actually there when damage planned to open up, but it wasn't a terribly full night, which probably is a blessing in disguise considering what happened that night. This deranged shooter enters the bar. Right as damage plan starts playing, we asked Vince, you know, what happens? Um, you know, people think it's something, you know, part of the show. Um, he walks right up to Dimebag Daryl on stage and he starts shooting. He entered the stage from the left-hand side 
uh, and then took aim at uh, Dimebag and shot him uh, three to five times. The bartender, who was also the owner of the Alrosa, thought that somebody was throwing off firecrackers. It could have been a cap gun. It could have been uh, you know, a stunt as well. Uh, speakers could have popped. I mean, when you're playing that loud and that hard, man, yeah. uh, you're going to have sounds that are going to happen. So um, they thought it was a stunt. And if you watch the security footage, people stand there and watch. People were so confused and shocked. Because if you're enjoying a show, last thing on your mind is you know you're going to see somebody die right in front of you. You're 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 thinking about what's your next drink going to be, not how am I going to save my life. Dimebag's dead. Shortly thereafter, three others are shot and killed. Many others are shot and wounded. You know, all who tried to help save Dimebag or others who were going after the attacker, or trying to you know, one guy was shot who was trying to give medical aid to Dimebag Daryl. And we're not going to name the shooter. We won't use his name because he's a loser. He doesn't deserve it. He's a murderer. We will talk about the victims, though. So you've got uh, Nathan Bray. He was married, had a two-year-old son. Uh, and uh, he tried to help uh, revive Dimebag, went up to uh, one of the heads of security that was uh, shot as well, tried to save him, and that's when... Uh took aim on him and uh, shot him. So Nathan Bray was 23 years old. You had uh, Aaron Stoney Hawk. Uh, he was a member of Al Rosa, uh, security staff. He was shot as well, trying to help. And uh, Jeff Thompson, Jeff Mayhem Thompson, was a 40-year-old when he died, and uh, he was head of damage plan security. And tragically, he oftentimes would uh, tell the guys that I'd take a bullet for you. And in the end, he took uh, multiple bullets uh, wow. to save more lives. So these are definitely three uh, heroes of that uh, incident. A hero comes through from the Columbus Police Department. James Nigemeyer. Officer Nigemeyer gets the call. We're going to play you an interview that he did. He's no longer on the force uh, and it has something to do with the shooting, the kind of the post-traumatic stress. But he's a hero to hard rock fans. We listened to Officer Nigemeyer's recounting of the events. My name is Officer James Nigemeyer. Uh, I've been with the Columbus, Ohio Police Department for eight years. December 8th, 2004 is a day that I wish uh, would have never happened. Just starting my shift when the radio dispatcher aired that there was a shooting at the Alrosa Villa nightclub. 43, male inside the Alrosa on stage with a 33. There is something still going on because these people wouldn't be running if it wasn't. I took my shotgun off the rack. I wanted to have a little more weaponry with me than my handgun. As soon as I got to the back of the club, everyone was pointing in the same direction. They were all yelling, he's there, he's still shooting, you've got to stop this, you've got to help, get in there please. Definitely the most scared I've ever been. Uh, the adrenaline was off the charts, so now it's just him, the hostage, and me. He was considerably larger than the hostage, and he was holding the hostage in a headlock, and the top of the hostage's head came up to about his chin. I remember thinking that if I have to shoot, I wanted to make sure that I didn't shoot low. I remember a bunch of people yelling, shoot him, shoot him. And I just raised up my gun and shot. The first thing I thought was, please tell me I didn't hit the hostage. And I sat down at home by myself and I watched that footage, seeing the suspect going across the stage, just thinking to myself, why? Why did you do this? Just a band trying to perform for people. I learned that he was just a mentally deranged human being that was not on his medication. You don't ever want to kill another human being but i have come to the realization that if i didn't there's no doubt in my mind that he would have killed me the alro Sevilla in columbus closes every december 8th you know that's the same day that a deranged fan killed john lennon in 1980 it's the same day december 8th that 24 years later dimebag daryl was killed here in columbus ohio we ask vince about his gravestone. He's got a crazy, cool-looking gravestone. 
And also, we want to make people aware of the Aaron Hawk Memorial Fund. Aaron, one of the victims of the attack, um, it goes to the St. Agatha School Fund on Northam Road in, in Arlington. Um, but you can give that. Dimebag Daryl has an amazing foundation uh, down in Texas as well. But we finished by asking Vince you know, about this gravestone where Dimebag Daryl was laid to rest in Texas. Is this picture that you sent me, Vince, of Dimebag Daryl's uh, yeah. gravestone, his marker in, in Arlington, Texas? Just describe it and talk about it for our listeners. Okay. You can see it if you if you look at you know the cover on, on, on the website. So the two colors are black and gold. It's about the length and the width of a casket. It is a metal. It's a it's a metal laid into the ground. So it says Dimebag, Daryl Lance Abbott's got his birth date and his, you know, unfortunate death date. And then it's got a real big thing with two guitars, like almost like a skull and crossbones and wings and his head on the top of it. And with its just you know classic dime expression, and on it it says he came to rock and rock like no other, with the heart twice the size of Texas. Our beloved brother, companion, mentor, idol, and friend. We love you, dime. Until we meet again. been focusing a little bit on the on the tragedy and the sad but rock and roll's upbeat and nobody's more upbeat or personifies rock and roll as far as i'm concerned in ohio than our next guest randy malloy his indie radio station independent radio station cd 1025 it was defied the odds and remains 28 years later as a symbol of the little guy triumphing over big business with corporate fat cats like iHeartRadio, uh you know formerly clear channel cumulus cbs They've changed the radio industry, much for the worse. But Randy continues to hold out, has tons of listeners, tons of sponsors. You can follow Randy on Twitter. He's Real Radio Randy. Or check out his YouTube channel. We've been looking at it. Rand Sanity, it's called. Uh, he's dropping a, uh, a video of us, you know, when we were filming this interview. We part of that, his YouTube channel. Again, Rand Sanity. Check that out on YouTube. He filmed our interview down at the station where we filmed uh, in the brewery district in Columbus. Um, we were at the big room bar. We fed me a couple of day drinks. You know, we talked about the world of modern rock radio, the future of his station, the future of radio. Uh, that means so much to so many people like myself. You know, an amazing indie rock station has brought hundreds of my favorite bands to town. You know, we get these shows that Cleveland and Cincinnati don't get because labels and managers know Columbus has an educated fan base. They'll turn out for shows. That's thanks to CD1025. Uh, you can stream their eclectic, you know, unique station at CD1025.com. Streaming is back, uh, which is great when you're sitting at the office. Uh, you can stream CD1025 anywhere in the country, anywhere in the world. You know, Randy walks us through nearly the last 40 years of rock and roll in one human's experiences, and he's still going strong. We asked Randy about growing up in, in, in New York, New Jersey, and his love of music at a young age. I started as an, well, the radio station went on the air in August, August 21st of 1990. Okay. Um, I heard about it almost immediately when it went on the air, and I started as an intern the fall of 91. Okay, so the I first was one year. of, I was the very first intern. Nice. 
Yes. Uh, and now you own the place, and that was probably, what, about a 20, 25-year journey right there? Yeah, well, sure. Almost, yeah, almost 30, 27 years. Yes, I own the place, or it owns me. <laughs> um, I really can't. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I don't do a whole lot of owning it. It seems to own me a lot more than I own it. What, what were some of your favorite bands growing up in New Jersey? Um, it's funny. I had a very eclectic upbringing. Um, I listened to Deep Purple. Nice. I listened to Styx. I listened to Led Zeppelin. Sure. I listened to Black Sabbath. Um, you know, I went and saw a lot of concerts being that close to New York City. Did you go to Asbury or what? Oh, yeah. Went, uh, Madison Square Garden. Nice. Yeah. CBGBs. Yeah. I mean, so I saw the Ramones play a few times, you know. There's no big time independent radio station in Cleveland, Cincinnati with this kind of reach. You know, we asked Randy if, if CD 102 would work in a city like Cleveland or Cincinnati. Or is Columbus that unique younger market needed, you know, for their business model? We asked Randy, would it work somewhere else? That's actually a really good question. Um, would we work somewhere else? Would we work in Cleveland? Would we work in Cincinnati? Would we work in another city? Um, yes. The, the short answer is yes. Um, th that we, we could work in other cities. Um, the long answer is no. We won't work in other cities. The, the reason that we work, the reason that we've survived for three decades is that we have, in fact, adopted to our environment. We don't play what is played everywhere else. We don't play what is the hits in New York City or in L.A. or in Chicago. We play what works in Columbus, Ohio. Yeah. So we've been hyper-local for 30 years. We've never, ever been, okay, so, you know, Billboard charts say this is number one. We need to play it. No. We play bands that people don't hear other places. I doubt there's a single song in the top 40 that you guys are spinning regularly right now, and maybe one or two. Yeah, possibly. I mean, we're one of the only, one of eight radio stations in the country that has 50% current or more music. Yeah. And I know that's recent. Someone just popped that stat at us. One of the only, one of eight. That is more than 50% current in the alternative format. I mean, and how many independently owned stations like yours are out there anymore? There's not I mean, a lot. There's not a lot. Randy Malloy is one of the hardest working men in show business. He has to, you know, to stay ahead of the corporate giants that dominate the industry. You know, it wasn't this way until, until the 90s, the turn of the century, when radio was taken over by giant corporations like Clear Channel. We asked Randy about his battle against the big boys. So talking about you know keeping this place afloat, being an independent rock and roll radio station here in the 21st century, you know I'm pretty sure that you don't sleep. I mean I've I don't know when you sleep. I would assume between midnight and 6:30 a.m. is when you when you normally rest. You're some sort of vampire person. Their philosophy is simple, and it's a it's brilliant. You know it's <laughs> it's dominating a market. Yeah. What they do is they have someone like in our market they have WNCI, which is 175,000 watt flamethrower yeah it is i mean it's one of those those radio stations that back in the 50s you could hear it on barbed wire fences that the cow pastures were on right you could hear it in indianapolis right you, know, you could you hear in the fillings of your teeth <laughs> okay because it is just massive yeah so what they do is that that's that's their tent pole they own the tent pole and then they buy other stations that are around it and they flank it so you buy commercials on the flagship, and they give you the commercials everywhere else for free. Well, you don't need to buy the the uh, you know alternative station. We have one. We'll give you those commercials. Yep. You don't need to buy the 
you know, the country station, we have one. But that's you not need a problem to buy in Columbus. Talk. That this is a national phenomenon in every big market. In every, right. In every market. Oh, really. that's what, and that's what, that is their modus operandi. That is corporate radio at its finest. How many, how many stations say iHeart owns? Probably over a thousand. Oh, over a thousand. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It, it is. It is. That's, that is the corporate mentality. That's how they work it. So yes, there was offers made back in the early days, but then they said, well, screw it. They got their own alternative station. I'm like, we're just going to bury you. Yeah. We're 27 years in. Right. Well, you know, and, and and they're still trying to bury us, but, you know, hey, it's hard to, you know, it's hard you're, to bury someone when they're still moving. I told you, you can't kill the the, uh, the, the already dead. You're right. a vampire. <laughs> well, yes. And to answer your question about sleep, it's usually around 2 a.m. and I get up at 7. Yeah. You know, people have been declaring that terrestrial radio is going the way of print media and the dodo in the 21st century. It's going to die. Yet it's still hanging on. And there have been many other times that the television was going to kill radio, all these different things that were going to kill it, the internet, satellite radio. But we asked Randy about the importance of radio and why it is just so hard to kill. Reports of my demise have been greatly exaggerated. Mm. You know, what's funny is that radio, when it's done the way radio was, when I, when I grew up listening to radio, radio was local. Okay, that's the thing. It was local. And we've been that. Because you're there for the community you live in. Yeah. So being there for the community you live in is what makes the difference. You were local before that was a thing. Right, you know? right. So, I mean, yes, social media is great. But think about this, all right? And this is what, these are the things that I always tell people. One, we're free. I don't cost you more as your bandwidth <laughs> goes up. Yeah. As your fees go up, I'm free. The advertisers take care of that expense. So it's free to you. I'm transportable. I can go with you in your pocket. I can go with you in your car. I can go in your house, your thing. I can go wherever you need me to go with you. Right. Okay? I'm immediate. I'm social media. I'm the original social media, if you think about it, because Definitely. I'm immediate. I can tell you when something's going wrong, when something's good, when something's bad. Hey, there's traffic here. I'm also a passive medium. Now, that's a big one. Think about this, okay? You don't remember that... TV show or that 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 tweet or that article you read when your first kiss, but you do have a song. Yeah, you do. You do have that song you remember, and those things allow you to put mu put music into a totally different category in your mind. If you think about it, so where you are is that you can listen to radio and you can drive your car. You can't. Well, you shouldn't be tweeting, Instagramming <laughs> while you're driving your car. You shouldn't be doing a lot of things when you're driving your car, but you can listen to the radio because it's passive. And you guys are streaming now as well. We stream, yes. Yeah. But you can also be having dinner and listen to music and information. And it's the storytelling because the DJs are storytellers. If they're telling you about what went on in the community or what's happening now, storytelling will never go away. And, you know, Pandora and Spotify, they don't offer that. No. They're music. And you know what? They have their place. If you just want music, you want to go for a run, you want to listen. But why do people listen to this? You said you have thousands of people listening to your podcast. I'm it's also a, free. You're also free. <laughs> but it's also storytelling. Yeah, that's and, all it is. And originally, radio was storytelling. Randy joins the station in 1991 as an intern. And now he owns it. We asked him about some of his favorite stories. You know, he focused on the old times, kind of as we all do, just starting out. And his story about accidentally eating the brownies backstage at a reggae concert at the that he was emceeing, you know, is a classic story. Um, he has to come out on stage and introduce him. You know, my favorite 102 story of mine, CD 102 story, is you know, I made a donation to their pledge drive years ago 
They were trying to buy their own FCC license, you know, which costs millions of dollars. And they asked their listeners to donate. Um, and I donated some money and got to introduce Weezer at, at a sold-out Summerfest show back in 2015. A super fun night for me and Miss Ohio V the World. We got to meet the band and stand backstage for, you know, for the entire show. We're the only two people allowed backstage. It was a pretty cool night. And I want to thank, you know, that's all thanks to Randy and the station for that memorable evening. But we had to get at least one backstage Randy story in the show. You know, so we take you back to the WOMAD Festival in 1993 at Buckeye Lake, Ohio. It's a boating and really bar community about 35 miles east of Columbus. Randy's still a young radio station employee, and he goes to the WOMAD Fest at Buckeye Lake. One was WOMAD. It happened at Buckeye Lake in Thornville. Nice. It was the world of modern art and dance. Peter Gabriel brought it. Really? Yes. And it, Lenny Kravitz, Peter Gabriel, Sinead O'Connor, the drummers of Burundi. It was a whole bunch of stuff. He, he had t- it was sort of a road show. He took it out on the road. Um, I remember because I, um, <laughs> I took a blow-off class, language requirement in college. I took Swahili. Nice. So um, we went out there, and the program director at the time, her name was Jane, and she was a huge Peter Gabriel fan. And he was, I mean, gigantic probably back then. Even oh, then, yeah. yeah. He was huge. I mean, this was his festival. Yeah. You know, and um, she was a huge fan, probably still is to this day. You know, love Jane. And um, she, got, she was going to get to interview him. So she was super excited. So, okay, you know what? And I'm the promotions guy. We drove a Winnebago out there, and it's like, okay, you be the MC. Yeah. I was like, okay. So I got on stage early in the morning, probably the first band went out like 11 o'clock, and you know, sort of got on stage, I'm like, hey, I'm Randy Malloy from CD101 in Columbus, and it was like, woo. <laughs> you know, like, Smattering. I'm like, yeah, I know, it's early. <laughs> you know, have another beer, wake up, we'll be good, here's this opening band. So you emceed the whole show then? I emceed the entire uh, that's awesome. show. So by the nighttime, I'm introducing Lenny Kravitz, and people are chanting, Randy, Randy. <laughs> and there's like, you know, 40,000 people at yeah. this concert. And I'm on stage, like, you know, this wide-eyed kid, like, yeah. That's awesome, man. You know, backstage, hanging out with Lenny Kravitz, Sinead O'Connor. But the thing that I remember, because I remember this the most, sure, that was huge and memorable, but the drummers of Burundi were there. And, well, guess what language they spoke? They spoke Swahili. They spoke Swahili. <laughs> so, so does Mr. Malloy. So the director says something, and I go, Hodi Hodi. He goes, Hodi Hodi. He goes, Jumbo. I go, Sorry, Jana. And start talking in Swahili, and he loses it. Yeah. He, like, gives me this big hug. He's like, my brother, you know my language. And it was the coolest thing ever to use a foreign language and talk to this guy. And he was so overwhelmed. And that's when it was like, suddenly, I was, like, in. Yeah. Now I'll stand there, and, you know, Sinead O'Connor's, you know, smoking a cigarette, hanging out with me. Like, right. oh, this dude must be cool. Because the Burundi guys, guys love this guy. And I was like, all right. This is, I'm digging this. And it was just, you know, it was one of those really unique experiences early on the days oh yeah and like forty thousand people you know chanting randy and i'm just laughing like oh my god this is hilarious i'm having the best time ever i'm like i think i'm gonna do this as a career cd1025 is known across the industry for helping break bands from around the world creating a fan base bringing that band to town and having them fall in love with the city its people and their love of music fits in the tantrums the lumineers to name a few recent ones uh, even, you know, one of my favorites, the Grammy Award winning Black Keys of Akron, Ohio, are an example of that. You know, a recent band, Jungle. Um, but 
It's that feeling you get when you find a band no one else knows about. You tell everyone about it, and then months or years later, they make it big. And it's such a fun feeling as a, as a music fan, but Randy does it, and his station does it here in Ohio for tons of bands. Uh, we asked Randy about you know some recent examples of that and how gratifying it must be to break a band. Some years back, uh, I come to the station, and there's a kid sitting at the bar. And I was like, hey, what's up? He's like, what's up? I'm like, oh, what's going on? Oh, here for the music being cool. Do you want water or soda, coffee or something? No, I'm cool. All right, great. Didn't think about it. A couple weeks later, kids sit at the bar again. I'm like, hey, what's up, man? I was like, oh, your music meeting? Yeah. I was like, oh, well, I'm Randy. What's your name? Oh, I'm Kevin. Cool. Nice to meet you, Kevin. You know, do you need a water center? No, I'm cool. Okay, whatever. Great. You know, a few more weeks later, here's this Kevin kid again. I'm like, what's up with this Kevin kid, man? You know, just hanging out there. I'm like, I'm like, you know, like, what's going on, man? So, you know, he's hanging out. I'm like, oh, Kevin, right? He goes, yeah. I'm like, cool. So, what do you do, man? He's like, hey, I'm in a band. I'm in a band called Walk the Moon. <laughs> yeah, they weren't signed yet. Yeah. That's they weren't, they weren't, they wanted, they were local and they tried and tried. Their goal was to be top five at five. I, I they want to be the number one band. That was their, that was their friends who they, that's all for, they you know? wanted to do. And they made top five of five. And I don't know, they might be this little band now that I don't know, tours the freaking world. Yeah, they do. But they had to start somewhere. Someone had to give them a chance. And that's what we did. I mean, you have to take chance on that. The jungle story is hilarious because the Tom, the lead singer, they had played a show in Chicago. Where are they from, Jungle? Um, the UK. You guys yeah, somewhere. In yeah, he lives in Brooklyn now. But yeah. Tom was uh, uh, he played a show in Chicago for sixty people, six zero. Yeah. They came to Columbus and we had been playing them. They played a low do show at the Newport Music Hall. Very rocked. Eight hundred people, yeah. and he was like, "Mate, what the hell? What's this? <laughs> Columbus, Ohio? I don't even know this place. This is crazy. I've never heard of this. What? What? what what's going? What's What's going on? We only paid for sixty people in Chicago. <laughs> this is crazy. What? How? Why is this? And we're like, "Cause we play you." Yeah. And that was it. Cause we played them. People were like, oh, "I like these guys." And yes, people are gonna jump on the computer. They're gonna find other songs. But again, we said, "Hey, this band's coming. It's a low do show. Come see them tomorrow." And boom. People came and saw them. Yeah, that was actually a really fun show. It was do. a great show, and they're actually going to come out with a new album here this year. So, if you get a chance, there's a great CNN article written a few years back about the station. They they came to Columbus and and hung out with the with Randy and, and his people for a couple of days. And did a, a really cool article. If you type in CD1025 uh, and CNN.com, check that out. But we had to finish by asking Randy, you know, the king of rock and roll in the Buckeye State. We had to ask him some Ohio rock questions. So we asked him first, you know, what's your favorite venue, you know, other than his great venue where we did the recording, the big room, uh, the big room bar, which is right above the station. It's all in the same building. Check that place out. The big room bar has a, a lot of great concert performances um, almost every night. But we asked him, what's his favorite venue here in the state of Ohio? Honestly, I love the Newport Music Hall. I yeah. love it. It is, it is exactly what it's supposed to be. It's an 1,800-person venue with a wraparound balcony. It's been doing it since the 60s. It's an old theater-type place, and it's it's, it's gritty and, oh, and dirty. And it, it's, I mean, it's upkept. Great, you know, the sound system's good. They keep it that way to keep that feel because if it was if they made it look new, it wouldn't People be would great. People would freak out. Yeah, yeah. My, but, well, that's my wife's favorite yeah, venue it's, too. It's a great venue. I love the Newport Music Hall. It was my first job when I moved to Ohio. My first job was a bouncer at the Newport Music Hall. Nice. I mean, there's great venues in Columbus. There's some, some great ones in in Ohio, but yeah, I'm a, I'm kind of a fan of it. We want to remind you subscribe to Randy's YouTube channel, Rant Sanity. 
Um, again, just type in Rand Sandy to YouTube, subscribe. Uh, he said he's going to drop some video when I saw him last night uh, from our interview as part of the show. Uh, but we closed by asking Randy, you know, what is his favorite, some of his favorite bands from Ohio? Who are the best bands from the Buckeye State? Probably start with the Pretenders. Yeah. You know, Chrissy Hine and company. Uh, pretenders are great. Breeders. Love the Breeders. Um, you know, the Deal Sisters. Breeders are what, Dayton, I think? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, the Deal Sisters. Um, you know, of course, you know, Kim and Kelly. And, of course, you know, a little bit of Pixies connection there, so you can't hate that. Yeah. Um, you know, I love OAR. You know, Jerry and, uh, and company, you know, uh, those guys are great. I'm yeah. so happy. And they, they did it real so naturally, well. you know. Right, exactly. I mean, very organic. Yeah. Really, really good cats. Um, you know, go back to the days of the toll. You know, Happy Chichester. Sure, yeah. You know, happy. love Harold. I mean, God, what a great cat. You know, um, Colin Gal, Watershed. Watershed, You yeah. know, those guys. You know, obviously, you know, Walk the Moon. Uh, what, a, what a great group. You know, I mean, think about 21 Pilots. Think about those guys. I mean, you know, when I first heard them, I'm like, oh, okay. But then I was they like, wow. I was like, I was like, wow, these guys are great. They really are. They've got good sound and, you know, they have a positive message. And, I mean, some good bands have come out of Ohio. And then, uh, come on. Black Keys. Yeah, that's one of my. I mean, seriously, the Black Keys. I mean, and those guys. I mean, they're as genuine as they come. Yeah, they really are. Akron, Firestone High School. Yeah. I mean, they really are. I mean, you know, we 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 had some shows with them early on, and you know, um, you know, I've been told they're fans when they come into town. They listen to the station, and you know, they're 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 living, I think, in Nashville now. But yeah, yeah, they they played. I mean, they played. I saw them with Scully. Right, and Scully. That was we did that show, and there. I mean, the, the sound that came. I think that was the first two-piece band that was out there that you know that wall of sound from just two guys you were like the hell and there are people like, that go see them just to see how that? loud they could be right they didn't like believe how it, you know? is that right and the scully show was incredible so packed. i think that was a so jameson packed. show that we hosted it was, uh, it was, that or a jim or jack daniels it or, was a jack daniels oh it was yeah. one of those jack daniels showcases yeah, that was a wild night yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> Our final segment, we're going to interview Jerry DePizzo from OAR. He's in Ohio and who's made it in the rock and roll world. His band has sold millions of records. They've toured the world. They have a live album and DVD from Red Rocks out in Colorado. I mean, they sold out Madison Square Garden multiple times. We'll ask him about that. But we want to know, we want to ask about his group's journey from obscurity in the Buckeye State to the top of the music world. Band all went to Ohio State. It's where they met Jerry. Um... And that's where he ultimately joined the band, saxophone player and guitarist. We asked Jerry about the start of the band at The Ohio State University. The way the band started was, like, you know, no one would book us. We were like 18, 19 years old at the time. So we would throw house parties. Um, There's a big apartment complex on Woodruff and High. Uh, Put a bunch of kegs in the center of the thing in a stage, and we would have at it. And those would get packed, and that would be fun. And then we would do that a couple times. That moved to Little Brothers. Sure, great, great rock uh, venue growing up here in Columbus. Packed Little Brothers full of underage uh, people. <laughs> people were going bananas. A uh, couple little spots here and there. We played uh, house parties, fraternity parties, anything that would have us. Um, Newport, I think selling out the Newport was a big deal for us. Being We all went to Ohio State. When you do that walk at freshman orientation, you take a walk down high street, you get a little free time, and you kind of go off on your own. And for me, the first thing we did was, it was happened to be with Mark, 
go down to high street and take a walk south and you walk past we walk past the newport and you see that marquee the string shop was right next to there yeah. but that that marquee man was that's the that was the brass ring of the college career was yeah. someday coulda shoulda woulda hopefully we'll get there and we did and we got there several times and uh you sold but you sold it out when you guys were still in school right yeah a bunch of times we we you know i Rightfully so, we'd go. We went into the Newport and said, "Hey, we would like to play here." And they were like, "Okay, great, kids. That's that's good for you." Pat you on the back. And we're like, "Well, how much is it to rent it out?" And that's what we did at first. Was we figured, you know, we need to prove these folks that we can actually do this, and we rented it out. And so a buddy of ours would just sit there at the door with a clicker, and folks would come in. And we started there, and we packed the place our first time. Jerry's other band members—they're all originally from Rockville, Maryland, outside DC. And they made a record that included two big hits for them later in life, uh, you know, even after Jerry joined. You know, Crazy Game of Poker, a song that a lot of people, our listeners, would know. Uh, a song I love called Black Rock, you know, songs that they still play at every show now. Um, but we asked, you know, why did they all end up at Ohio State? And how does, you know, being in Central Ohio lead to their success as a touring band? Well, it was strategically picked. It really was. Um so the boys were back in Maryland, and they said, we really love what we're doing with this band. We want to keep it together when we go to college. So let's identify two things. One, let's, get into a, let's go to, all go to a school that everybody can get into. So number one. <laughs> 90s Ohio State. 90s Ohio State. <laughs> a little different than today. Uh, still an awesome school. Number two, it's got to be big. It's got to have a lot of kids. We're not going to a, a small school. Ohio State was picked because of one, its size, it, you know, fifty thousand undergrad or whatever it was at the time was you know well, that plenty big for us, and two, of where it was located, in the sense of in what really was, I think a big uh, attribute to our success was that we were able to, within six hours, we could be darn near anywhere. Uh, and that was important for us on the weekends. As we started to grow outside of Columbus, we did it in concentric circles, basically. So we hit like Columbus first, Columbus, Athens, Columbus, Athens, uh, Miami, Ohio. Uh, and then we would hit Cleveland, and then we would touch Pittsburgh, and then we, you know, Dayton, Toledo's, and then we would stretch out a bit. We'd go to Bloomington, Indiana. We'd hit Chicago. Chicago, we were able to catch, catch fire from there. We were still only six and a half hours from Maryland, so we would still be able to get there. New York's eight hours away. It, we were able to connect so many dots on Thursday through Sunday. We did that for three years, basically every weekend. So by the time we actually got out of college in 2001 and hit the ground running full time, we had done so much legwork already. We just all we had to do was just stay out there on the road and connect all those dots through the country, and that's what we did. OAR comes of age, you know, kind of at the same time as this internet music explosion. Napster and other, you know, file sharing services were all the rage. It was a real moment in time, an era. Um, you know, when I was in college, you know, before the government and the music industry hadn't cracked down yet, and people would have thousands of songs on their on their hard drives. You go listen to anything for free, trade it with your friends, and OAR really thrives in this, this climate. The song Crazy Game of Poker um, catches a lot of people's attention, and it catches people's attention on their computers. You know, this is the environment that OAR becomes po very popular. We asked Jerry about that period in music history. 
the Napster times. This thing, uh, Napster, came along where you could share tunes from your hard drive with other people and just pull stuff randomly off the internet. This was, you know, I attribute our success to that of, one, who's using that technology? It's all college kids. We were college kids. So that we, were just, we were sharing our music. And we happened to be the music for a lot of, a lot of college kids uh, in the you know East Coast and Midwest, we were you know part of the soundtrack of their college experience. Yeah, I mean, I remember blaring out of the windows of my dorm and in my dormitory, but you know, in the early two thousands, oh three, oh four, when I went to when I was still in school. I mean, I remember thinking, I think I got my first song of yours, which was Crazy Game Poker, off of Napster. In yeah, my, in in there, my freshman dorm room in nineteen probably ninety nine or two thousand. There wasn't a college bar that didn't close its doors to that was a crazy <laughs> game of poker for you know probably. Was it just CG A minor F, right? Went with it. By 2006, OAR is a big band. They're nationally known. And so big that they decide to play a show at Madison Square Garden. In 2006, they sell it out, which is, you know, such an incredible accomplishment, a benchmark for any band. And I just had to ask Jerry, you know, about that night in 2006 and how it felt to know that, you know, we've made it. Six, yeah, we did six, seven, and uh, played it. Packed it pretty darn good in 2008 as well. Um, what I was so proud of in 06 was uh, one, there was, we didn't think we were going to get anywhere near that. It was uh, almost like Alan Freed putting on that that show. The Moondog Coronation, yeah, yeah. Where, you know, we rented the theater out. So there's, you have the Madison Square Garden, you have the arena, everybody knows about. Then there's a theater inside, it's much more scaled down. It's maybe a couple thousand folks at best. And so we would sell that out at like 2,500, 3,000 people. And we're like, wow, hey guys, we're going to, let's go into the bowl. And, and that alone was a victory. Yeah. Whatever whatever we do, let's just get in there. And we sold, you know, at, you can scale where the stage is. So you can play to like half the bowl or you can play to the whole darn thing. So we started at half and then sold all that and then moved it back to That's like two awesome. thirds. And then three quarters and then all the way back and all that went. And then we said, well, let's open up the third deck and play around. Oh, I've been so there. Yeah. That's way up there. We sold every seat in that place, man. That's so awesome. Yeah. Man. So that, that felt great, but really what, what felt the best was everybody came with us. Anyone that ever had a hand in any, anything that had to do with OAR at that point came in friends, family, all of it. And it was, that was special. Speaking of New York, Jerry and, and OAR have a huge show this March Friday, March 23rd, at the Beacon Theater in, in, in Manhattan. And it's in support of Madison Square Garden's Garden of Dreams. It's a nonprofit. And OAR is playing and curating this, what's called the Concert of Dreams. Um, it's Unfortunately, it's sold out, but you can still try and find a ticket out there somewhere. But we asked Jerry about this really cool upcoming show in, in the Big Apple. MSG has this great organization, Garden of Dreams. And they, you know, all the folks there, they, they basically create dreams for 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 kids who really need it and so we're super happy to be a part of it concert for dreams uh march 23rd at the beacon theater sold out for uh for the most part you have to get on StubHub. yeah i know i got a couple little tickets here and there that are available uh little single seats all over the place but but really i mean that show's sold out already and it's going to be great we're going to do two shows one's going to be a matinee for all the kids we're going to get the kids involved with it we have a great time doing that, and then we're gonna have the evening show, uh, 
and we're gonna have a lot of guests. Uh, Adam Durris from County Crows. Yeah. Gavin Negras going to be there. Uh, Robert Randolph, who Robert, I love. our good buddy Robert Randolph, uh, good to be there. Johnny Resnick from the Goo Goo Dolls is Johnny in. Resnick, nice. Yeah. So he's in, in New York, oh, Buffalo, I think. Yeah, right and now. we're and a whole bunch of other folks. Uh, uh, Daryl McDaniel's from Run DMC. DMC from yeah, Run D- DMC. Yeah, yeah. It's just I'm so excited. I'm I'm practicing rock, walk this way every day. <laughs> I mean, like it's it's great. So we get to learn all a bunch of these songs with you. our good buddy Matt Nathanson's going to be there. Uh, we're learning all these songs, so uh, if I'm not on this podcast, I'm at home uh, figuring out how to play Slide by the, by the Google. In the Dog. fall of 2012, Jerry and his OAR bandmates returned to Ohio State. They returned for a special show at the iconic Oval, the center of the Ohio State campus. And they play with the best damn band in the land, the Ohio State Marching Band. And they walk with the university president, was Gordon Gee at the time. They're playing, and they walk with Gordon Gee from the Student Union on High Street, uh, to a giant concert for the students in the Oval. A true homecoming for Jerry and OAR, and possibly one of the most Ohio rock and roll things that's ever happened. We closed the show by asking Jerry about this really cool night he had at his alma mater. A couple of years ago, Ohio State launched this big fundraising campaign. And so they booked OAR. But for Ohio State, I think it was But for, that's yeah. right, but for Ohio State. And we played the launch kickoff event for it. And the way that went down was we started at the Student Union uh, with the Ohio State Marching Band. We sang um, the, the fight song. We marched from the Student Union all the way through the Oval uh, with Gordon Gee leading. Then it was OAR. Then it was the entire Ohio State Marching Band. You mean you're walking and playing? We're walking through the Union, or we're walking through 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 the um, the Oval. The Oval, thank you. We're walking through the Oval. Uh, the band's playing a cadence. We get up on stage at the end of the Oval by the library. We hit and we play uh, "Hey Girl" and "Hang On Sloopy" with the with the marching band, and then we kick off a two-hour show. Uh, That's awesome. Yeah. Man, just awesome. Just as a uh, an Ohio guy. Our book recommendation today is called Hitless Wonder, A Life in the Minor Leagues of Rock and Roll by Joe Ostrick, Columbus. Uh, they talk, the book talks about Watershed, you know, a friend and I think even a listener, Colin Gowles in that band. Uh, but it talks about their journey of near stardom. They got a six-figure record deal from Epic, Epic Records in the mid-90s. Um, but they never had a hit, and the label ends up getting, getting rid of them. Um, and the book is just really cool. It came out in 2011. It's about that journey and the decision whether or not to hang it up. Uh, I just saw Watershed play at the Independence Day Festival uh, last fall, you know, a festival I've worked on. It's the legal council for years. Named the best festival in Central Ohio for the last two or three years. Um, unfortunately, we're not doing it anymore, but we'll see what comes of that. But they played a great show, and I stood in front and, you know, yelled the chorus, the words, the sucker punch by, by Watershed. Um, and that's what got me to read the book. It reminded me of Hitless Wonder. Really great book about making it in the music scene, or in this case, not quite making it. You know, getting all the way there just to have it fall short of, of superstardom like it did for the Ohio band. I want to thank everybody for joining us today, uh, Jerry and Ross and Vince and Randy. 
Uh, so cool you guys can make some time. Um, you know, there's so many ideas. We'll have to do another rock and roll in Ohio at some point. Um, there's so many other things that we want to get to and talk about. Uh, send us your ideas for future shows. Uh, if you've got another rock and roll idea um, or any Ohio history topic, you can email us at ohiovtheworld at gmail.com. Check out the website, ohiovtheworldpodcast.com. Um, and you obviously rate and review us on iTunes. It takes two seconds. You can just scroll down, give us that five star. And like I said, it takes two seconds. It really helps us move up in the ratings. Uh, just takes one moment to scroll down there. Give us that five star and keep us up, keep us high in the, re- in the uh, rankings there. Um, our next episode, again, we release episodes every other Monday. Our next episode will be about Salmon and Kate Chase, two of my favorite historic figures, father and daughter from the state of Ohio in the 19th century. We'll talk about their amazing lives, Kate's incredible story. And that'll be our next episode. It'll be John Aller joining us. Uh, our guest from Ohio versus Murder 2.0 wrote a book about, about Kate Chase uh, called American Queen. And we'll, we'll go back and talk about her life. That's really the first celebrity, you know, the first person who was famous for being famous in the United States, Kate Chase. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. Um, we will be back again. Season two is rolling along. Thank you guys so much for listening. See you later. To help us remember the talents that have inspired us. Whoa, 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 cut. Oh, come on. It wasn't that bad. It's a bit dramatic. Let's just tell them about the show, guys. We are the Canned Air Podcast. Join us weekly for a comedic trip through pop culture. We also welcome some cool comic creators, as well as some of the voice and screen actors that help shape your childhood. Find us on cannedairpodcast.com and on the Evergreen Podcast Network.